Please turn with me in your Bibles to the ninth chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Continuing our series of studies through Luke's Gospel. This morning we will be looking at chapter 9, verses 28 through 45. Luke 9, verses 28 through 45. Please give your full attention to the Word of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he, Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I beg your disciples to cast it out. But they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. In this passage, we have an eyewitness account of one of those very rare, behind-the-veil type events, something that is very unique in the history of mankind. Those moments where people are given a glimpse of the glory of God, a visible glimpse of the glory of God, a peek at the spiritual reality that exists behind and beside everything that we know is physical reality. There are only a few examples of this kind of encounter in all of Scripture, in all of history. You think 
maybe of Jacob and the ladder that he saw between earth and heaven and the angels ascending and descending on the ladder at a place that he would call the gate of heaven. Or you may think of Isaiah's view, the invitation he had into the throne room to view the Lord seated upon his throne with his robe filling the temple and the seraphim surrounding the throne singing holy, holy, holy. Or maybe you think of Paul where he was taken into the, what he calls the third heaven, the highest heaven, the presence of God in the throne room. And that is the place where he says he heard things that cannot be told. And then maybe you're thinking of John. John, who was invited to enter into a doorway into the throne room of heaven where he was given visions of things to come until Christ comes again. Those are unique moments in history where the spiritual realm became visible, a glimpse of the glory of God. And here, in this passage, we have the greatest of all these glimpses of glory. It's called the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. It was a moment where heaven and earth meet. And the true nature and the mission of Jesus Christ is revealed to mankind. You know, scientists have tried to explain how the universe came into existence. And as they have struggled to explain that, they've really struggled to explain how life happened here on Earth. Because as they have studied the laws of physics, they realize that the constant laws, the, 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 the constants that are established by the laws of physics are so minutely fine-tuned to such a degree that it is impossible to imagine that in a universe with these laws, how in the world could life by chance have ever happened on this planet? It's just too far beyond rational ability to understand how chance could have produced it. So how do scientists wrestle with that? Well, one of the more recent theories is the, the idea of the multiverse. Chance could not produce life the fine-tuned factors to produce life on this planet like we know it. So within the, the, the realm of this universe, so what if there were many universes, hundreds, thousands, millions maybe of universes? Now you've upped the odds, so to speak, that chance could produce the fine-tuned factors that create life on Earth. Science fiction, literature, and movies have had a field day with this idea of the multiverse of They've talked a lot about parallel universes, and they, a lot of storylines in recent movies are about finding some kind of a doorway or a gate, a nexus between our universe and a parallel universe. Maybe a universe where there are doppelgangers for each one of us in similar places, and you know everything's the same, but maybe a little different in a different universe, and somehow we could get access between universes. Well, God has told us, that in reality there are only two universes, so to speak. There is the physical universe, and then there's the spiritual realm. The physical realm and the spiritual realm. And here, on this mountain, we have one of those nexus points, one of those connection points between the spiritual realm and the physical realm, where the glory of God, the glory of heaven, shines through for just a moment. 
we get that rare glimpse behind the curtain. Last week, you may have noticed if you were here, I didn't really touch on the last verse of the passage we studied last week. That's verse 27. Jesus makes a very cryptic statement there. Listen to what he says. He says to his disciples, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That statement has mystified scholars, pastors, students of the word ever since Jesus said it. What did he mean? What was he referring to? Some of his disciples would not die before they saw the kingdom of God. Some commentators think he was talking about his resurrection. Some think he was talking about his, re- his ascension to the throne in heaven where they saw him lifted up in the clouds. Some think that he was talking about Pentecost when the church was filled with the Holy Spirit and became the visible kingdom of God on earth. Some think that he was referring to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD when the Old Testament kingdom is finally destroyed and the church becomes the visible kingdom of God on earth. Well, I think most commentators settle on the idea that because of its proximity, that statement about some of his disciples seeing the kingdom of God before they die, and the very next thing that's recorded in these gospels is this encounter on the top of the mountain, that that's what Jesus was referring to. That some of his disciples were going to see a manifestation of Christ and his kingship that would be spectacular, it would be unique. Jesus here, it says, invited some of his disciples, three to be exact, Peter, James, and John, to join him in going to the top of some unnamed mountain and there to pray. Again, I'll just point it out, another prayer retreat. How often Jesus retreated to pray. And here he does it again, teaching these disciples the necessity of it. Peter, James, and John were unique among the disciples. They had a special calling among the disciples to be leaders among leaders, and we see that. Jesus separates them for this special revelation on the top of the mountain. These are the same three disciples that were the only disciples that were invited into the home of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, to see Jesus raise his daughter from the dead. These are the same three disciples who in the Garden of Gethsemane were invited by Jesus to go further into the garden while he prayed to the Father in preparation for going to the cross. Peter, James, and John. Peter, of course, was the one who made the first confession of Jesus being the Christ, and he became the rock, so to speak. He and his confession was the rock that, on which Christ built his church, and he led the early church. James was the first martyr to die for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and John, by his own description in his gospel, was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Here Jesus gives them a very special training session, And as we see it play out, we understand that what this training is about is about the nature of faith. What is true staving faith? That's really the key question. Faith in whom? Faith by itself is useless. The key question is faith in whom? And that's what we've seen in these recent couple of chapters is that at this point in Jesus' ministry, that was the burning question. Who is this man? The crowds had been asking it over and over. 
The disciples asked it after they witnessed Jesus still a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Herod asked the same question when he heard the reports about Jesus' ministry and his miracles. Who is this man? What we see here on this mountaintop is that God the Father is going to give the definitive answer to who this man is. He presents him as the object of our faith. Not only the object of our faith, but the fully trustworthy object of our faith. At the top of the mountain, Jesus is in deep prayer with the Father. And it says here that Peter, James, and John were sleeping. Same thing they would be doing in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying. They were sleeping. And suddenly, Jesus is transformed. Somehow, the barrier between his physical nature, his true human nature, and his divine nature as the eternal Son of God, somehow that barrier became blurred and his divine glory shone through his physical being. Luke says that his face and his clothing became dazzling white. And the word that he uses in the Greek is the word that was used for a flash of lightning. To give you an idea of how bright that light that emanated from Christ was. Matthew tells us that his face shone like the sun. Imagine trying to look directly at the sun in that brightness. Mark tells us that his clothes became radiant, intensely white. This is a quote. Radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. It's in that intense heavenly light as it consumed the top of the mountain that these disciples awaken from their deep sleep. And they're groggy and they squint as this light overwhelms them, but they're able to make out the shape of two men that are talking to Jesus. It says these men also appeared in glory. The question is, how did the disciples, these three disciples, figure out who these two men were? The text says they were Moses and Elijah. How did the disciples figure that out? I mean, if I, you know, if Abraham Lincoln suddenly walked into the room, I would recognize him because I've seen pictures of him in history books. But there were no pictures of Moses. There are no pictures of Elijah. How did they know who these two men were? Well, it says that they were listening as they talked to Jesus. They were listening to the dialogue. From listening to what Jesus was saying to Moses and Elijah, they figured out that this was the great mediator of the Old Covenant, Moses, and the great representative of the prophets, Elijah. You know, even just seeing these two men and realizing who they were, that would be an incredible confirmation of faith, wouldn't it? Moses died 1,500 years earlier. Isaiah died 900 years earlier. And here they were alive in glory. God's promises to his people to bring them through death into his presence. There's confirmation that's real. But it goes on to talk about their dialogue. What was Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah about? And it says they were talking with Jesus about his departure. Obviously, the focus has been more and more on what Jesus was, had his face set to go to Jerusalem to do, which was to go to the cross. They're talking to him about his upcoming atoning death on the cross. 
It's interesting, the word that's used here is departure. That's how it's translated in English, but in the original language, the word means exodus. Think about it. Here's Moses, the great leader of the exodus of God's people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt into the wilderness, over to the promised land. Here's Moses who in so many ways foreshadowed and pointed forward to the greater exodus to come. Now he's getting to talk to Jesus as he's about to accomplish that great deliverance. And of course, you have Elijah. Elijah who represented the Old Testament prophets. Moses, who in so many ways lived out in a foreshadowing way what our salvation would be. And then you have the prophets who were sent later in the Old Testament to declare in detail who the Messiah would be and how he would come to save his people. To the disciples, Moses would represent the law of God, which was revealed, the Ten Commandments revealed on Mount Sinai. Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant. He received the law of God. He represented God's law. And Elijah represented the prophets who brought the good news of the coming Messiah. The Jews and Jesus himself referred to the Old Testament writings as the law and the prophets. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To bring the final great exodus for God's people. That's what he and Moses and Elijah were talking about. Remember when Jesus, after his resurrection, he met with two disciples on the road to, to Emmaus. And it says in Luke 24, verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted it to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Moses and the prophets, Elijah and the prophets, pointed to this great moment that was coming the exodus of God's people as Christ led them through death and resurrection into the kingdom of God and the promised land forever. What a conversation to eavesdrop on. Could you imagine being Peter, James, or John listening to this conversation? Peter wants the experience to continue, wouldn't you? Let's hang out. Let's, let's, let's camp out for a while. So he says, you know, let's build three tents. Lord, the word there is the word that's used for the, the same word that would be used for the, uh, the booths that they, the Israelites built during the Feast of the Tabernacles where they'd build these old temporary shelters so they could gather and worship and fellowship during these feasts. He says, let's build these temporary shelters so we can stay around. I would love to sit down with Elijah and just hear about his life, his ministry, What's heaven like? What, what's it like to be a prophet of God? Sit down with Moses. Who wouldn't love to do that? Let's just hang out here and enjoy this incredible experience, this spiritual experience. Well, as usual, Peter, to quote the later words of the Lord himself, Peter had his mind set on the things of men and not on the things of God. The purpose of them being there was not to have this extended spiritual experience, but it was to broaden their understanding of who Jesus was, to see his glory, to have a deeper 
belief in him and trust in him and commitment to him because of what they saw about who he was and why he came. That's why the glory cloud shows up at that moment. The Shekinah glory cloud. It's the same cloud that led Moses and the Israelites through the wilderness to the promised land. It's the same cloud that covered the top of Mount Sinai when Moses received the law from God. It's the same cloud, the glory cloud that filled the tabernacle when it was completed and filled the temple later when it was completed. It was the presence of God, this powerful, mysterious presence of God in the midst of his people. And it's the voice of God the Father that speaks at that moment. And he says, this is my son. Who Jesus was in his very essence, the eternal son of God. My chosen one. It's another title for the Messiah. My chosen one, my Messiah, my deliverer. And then the implication. Listen to him. My eternal son, my chosen Messiah, listen to him. And by listen, he doesn't mean just hear, obviously. He means hear, understand, believe, trust, submit, and obey. That's what it means to listen to him. That was the point of that experience they had on the top of the mountain. You know, Peter had confessed faith in Christ, as, in Jesus as the Christ, we saw that last week. He confessed in Jesus as the Christ. And here, God the Father powerfully confirms that faith in Christ. But what a contrast to what was going on at the bottom of the mountain. Where we see a massive failure in faith on the part of the other disciples. Jesus, and the, and the next day, this all seems to have happened at night, which would have made it all the more spectacular... But the next day, they come down from the mountaintop, and at the bottom of the mountain, they're greeted by a large crowd. And it says that the crowd was filled with confusion and anger and arguments. And we see that the disciples had suffered a significant defeat at the hands of the forces of darkness. Mark, in his gospel account, tells us that the other nine disciples were arguing as, the, as these three disciples and Jesus came down off the mountain the other nine disciples were arguing with the scribes, the Jewish scribes, about their failure to heal a young boy and to cast a demon out of him. Remember back at the beginning of chapter 9, we saw how Jesus had trained and prepared his disciples and then sent them on a mission to preach the good news of the kingdom of God and to heal and to cast out demons, and they had been able to do that. But here it is, such a short time after that, and the disciples, without Jesus there, failed miserably. A father had come to them and asked them to heal his son. And as the description of the, the, the physical ailment that he had, as it's, as it's described, sounds like epilepsy. It probably was some, something like epilepsy. He would have massive seizures, foaming at the mouth. He'd be incapacitated. And it, the, 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 the seizures would as it threatened to destroy him, break him, it says. But it wasn't just the physical ailment. There was demonic activity involved. There was a demon that would use this physical disability to attack this young man and his family, his father. 
It's very similar to the way in which Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh. Paul, the apostle Paul had some kind of physical affliction, but Paul says that that physical affliction was a messenger of Satan to harass me. And that's what Satan was doing with this, this epilepsy. He was harassing this young man, seeking to destroy this young man. And the disciples could do nothing about it. Do you see how Jesus responds? He groans and he says, oh, faithless and twisted generation. That phrase is actually a quote from Deuteronomy 32, where God speaks of his frustration with the Israelites in the wilderness because of their refusal to believe, their refusal to obey. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Now, of course, he was frustrated and grieved by the rejection of the Jewish scribes that were there, who rejected him completely. He also was grieved by the false beliefs that we've seen that so many in the crowd had about him. But particularly, we know, especially as you compare this with the other gospel accounts, he was deeply grieved by the weak faith of his own disciples that he had spent so much time with. We know from Matthew's account that these disciples came to Jesus and asked him, why did we fail? Why couldn't we cast the demon out? Why couldn't we heal the boy? And Jesus responded, because of your little faith. In Mark's gospel account, he says that Jesus also responded by saying, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, for a long time, I read that and thought, wow, that was a really special kind of demon. It needed a special kind of incantation or a prayer to get rid of that. That's not what Jesus is saying. He says, nothing, it didn't take a special prayer. He's saying, you didn't pray. You tried to do this in your own strength. You tried to do this in the flesh. You didn't ask for the help of God to do what he called you to do. And you failed because of it, because of your little faith, as he says, your weak faith. They didn't fail because of a lack of effort. They didn't lack because of a false technique or wrong technique. They failed because of a weak faith. That's why I'm so glad that this passage ends the way it does, because Jesus ends by giving a hint of the hope for those who have a weak faith. In verse 44, he gives another summary of his mission, why God the Father had sent him into this world. He says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. The Messiah the eternal Son of God was about to be handed over to evil men to suffer, to be crucified, and to die. The Messiah did not come to have a camping trip with the disciples. He did not come to give them enlightened spiritual experiences. He came to go to the cross. He came to be the Passover lamb who would shed his blood to atone for the sins of God's people, to bear God's wrath that the sins of God's people deserved, to die in their place, to lead his people out of slavery, to sin and death. In verse 45, it says that the disciples still didn't understand. It says it was concealed from them. The blinders were still on. They, they, they didn't understand what he was saying yet. It's a reminder to all of us that we're all in process. 
We're all somewhere between total disbelief and, and rejection of Christ and full enlightenment and submission and trust in him at all times. We're somewhere between those two extremes on the spectrum. We're all in process. We once were blind, but now we see. But like the blind man that Jesus healed, so much of the time we see men walking like trees. You know, it's, it's so fuzzy. It's so foggy. We can't see clearly because our faith is still so weak. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, Paul says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Our faith is weak. But there's hope for those with weak faith. Jesus died for the sinful attitudes, thoughts, and choices that we make because our faith is so weak and we see so dimly into the spiritual realm. Jesus died for those sinful thoughts and choices and words. And he has promised us that if our faith is real, if we can see it all, his promise is, is that he will, by grace, continually grow that faith, clarify that vision, so that we can see spiritual reality as clear as we see physical reality. That is the process of our lives as his disciples. Remember, when Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, as he tells this story about the boy who was healed and the demon that was cast out, Jesus paused for a moment before he healed the boy, according to Mark, and he said, do you believe that I can help your son? And the father said, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's the kind of attitude that the Lord is looking for. He knows what level of faith you have. He knows how clear your view is of the spiritual realm and spiritual reality. He just wants you to ask for the Lord to clarify your vision, to strengthen your faith. He rejoices in answering those kinds of prayers. Heaven and the spiritual realm is just as real as this physical universe. Faith is believing what Jesus has told us about that spiritual realm. Listen to him, God the Father said. He has revealed this spiritual truth to us. We need to listen, understand, submit, and obey. C.H. Spurgeon compares our physical senses and how we perceive the physical world around us with our spiritual sense of faith and how we perceive spiritual reality around us. And listen to what he says. He says, faith is the soul's eye by which it sees the Lord. Faith is the soul's ear by which we hear what God will speak. Faith is the spiritual hand that touches and grasps the things not yet seen. Faith is the spiritual nostril which perceives the precious perfume of our Lord's garments. Faith is also the soul's taste by which we perceive the sweetness of our Lord and enjoy it for ourselves. That's faith. The book of Hebrews in chapter 11 defines faith in terms of spiritual sight. Have you ever noticed that? Verse 1, very familiar verse. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I think it's the NIV that translates that, being certain of what you cannot see. And then the whole rest of the book, the whole rest of chapter 11 
in the book of Hebrews is about how the Old Testament saints live by faith the same way we do. They weren't saved by works, they were saved by faith. And it describes what faith looked like for the Old Testament saints. And so it gives the examples, for instance, of Noah, where it says that Noah believed God's warnings, quote, concerning events as yet unseen. I mean, Noah built an ark inland, way inland, believing that God was true to his word, that judgment would come by water. Abraham left his family, left his country, left his culture, left everything behind, it says in Hebrews 11, not knowing where he was going, trusting in him who is unseen for the promises that could not be seen. Moses, it says in Hebrews 11, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. It's because Moses had faith that he could see God who is invisible. Sure, Moses had, he was one of those rare people who had physical manifestations given to him, glimpses of glory, but that's not how he lived day by day. He lived by faith. He listened to him who told him what is true for the present and the future. Well, how does, as you think about Hebrews 11, how does it all wrap up? What's the point of all this for the writer of the book of Hebrews? Well, that's in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where he says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How do you know that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God on the throne in heaven? How do you know that? can't see it. You know it by faith, the gift of faith that God has given you. And even if your faith is very weak, the promise is that God always grows the faith that he gives. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, is to grow the faith that he gives. It's interesting, Peter, many years later, would look back upon his mountaintop experience, and he wrote about it in the second letter that he wrote, 2 Peter chapter 1. Listen to his reflection upon that experience. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. But is that what it's all about? Is it that experience that sustained Peter day in and day out? Peter went through all kinds of suffering for the sake of the gospel. Was it remembering this spiritual experience at the top of the mountain that got him through? No. The very next thing that Peter writes, listen carefully. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. How do we see the glory of God? 
How do we see the kingdom of God? How do we see what is real and true in the spiritual realm? It's right here. It's all we need. This is what clarifies your vision, your faith vision. You begin by asking God to increase your faith. And then you look into his word to have your faith vision made stronger. And then you go out into the world and you practice it. Because faith is kind of like a muscle that way. You practice, you exercise your faith, and as you exercise your faith, as you do what is appropriate to and coordinate with what you see by faith to be true in the spiritual realm as well as in the physical realm, then your faith is strengthened. As you practice your faith, it is strengthened. And that is the promise of Christ. Paul said, we walk, not by, faith. We walk by faith, but not by sight. And just one last thought, something for you to consider, because you're measured every day by all the people around you. Matter of fact, it gets really wearying, doesn't it, that everybody around you is judging you. Everybody around you is measuring you. They measure you by the clothes you wear. They measure you by the amount of degrees that are listed after your title. They measure you by the job you have. They measure you by your attractiveness, your height, your weight. They measure you by the neighborhood you live in, the kind of car you drive. But let me ask you, how does God measure you? When he looks at you, how does he measure you? Paul gave us the answer to that question in Romans 12, verse 3, where he says, Each of us is not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. May our faith be strengthened by his word and his spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us eyes to see. When we were dead in our sins, when we were spiritually blind, we had no hope, no way out of our bondage to our sinful natures and bondage to death, bondage to the evil one. We had no hope. But Lord, through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, through his shed blood on the cross, and through the power of his Holy Spirit, you gave us spiritual eyes to see. You showed us your glory. And even though our faith remains so weak, even though we tend to live and act and think as the world does, which has no spiritual sight, Father, I thank you that we can trust in the shed blood of Christ of forgiveness for our weakness and failings. Thank you, Lord, for the hope we have that this gift of faith you've given, that you will nurture it, you will test it, you will strengthen it, and one day we will be able to see clearly and, be, and know fully even as we are fully known. Thank you, Lord, for these promises of your word. We know they are true because we listen to him and we see him by faith in all of his glory. In his name we pray, amen.